Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on Think Humanities, Shaker Village of Pleasant Hill, home to the third largest Shaker community in the United States between 1805 and 1910. Shaker Village is home to a remarkable story. The Pleasant Hill Shakers are recognized for their iconic architecture, skilled craftsmanship, and profound spirituality. Our guide for today's discovery is Shaker historian and program administrator, Dr. Jacob Glover. Dr. Glover, uh, thank you for joining us on the Think Humanities podcast. Let me just begin by asking you to talk about uh, the Shakers at Pleasant Hill. Um, when they began, what they were doing here, uh, how they chose this beautiful part of Kentucky. So Pleasant Hill uh, is not the start of the Shakers' history. Um, really, to get there, we need to go back uh, just a really long way. So um, as a group, um, the Shakers uh, are really kind of tied back into a much earlier history, uh, and they formed in the 1740s in England, actually, so not a lot of folks know that. Uh, now, the Shakers in England at that time, um, they were nothing really like uh, what people often associate with them in the U.S. Um, in the 1800s. Uh, the Shakers were a fairly poor group. Uh, they were a small group. Uh, they were um, a radical group uh, in the sense of um, really in how they went about their faith and how they worshiped and that's actually how they got their name uh, when they would worship they would often do some things that um, they might um, shake violently or dance it was really a lot of physical movement and that's how they got their name uh, by folks who would watch them worship and they would say well you're not worshiping you're shaking uh, now the shakers called themselves something that's very different it's a very long I'll say it slowly, um, it's not something that people often have heard, but it's really core to their ideals of their faith itself. So the Shakers called themselves the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Coming. Uh, and that was because the Shakers said that the Christ Spirit had returned to the earth. Um, so obviously the Shakers were a Christian group, uh, but that part of their faith really set them apart from a lot of other mainstream groups at that time. If the Christ Spirit has come back, most other groups, especially in this area, uh, by the 1800s, you've got, you know, Baptist and um, um, so Methodist and other groups like that. A lot of those groups are still waiting for the second coming of the, you know, Christ to happen. Uh, the Shakers said that second coming has already happened, but it didn't happen in physical form. There's not one person who is Christ back on the earth walking around, but the Christ Spirit is back. And because the Christ Spirit is back, the Shakers made the call to do certain things. One was they wanted to lead a celibate lifestyle. They would say, because the Christ Spirit is back, uh, we're now in this new era of church history. Uh, they said it's time to start living as the angels did in heaven. They're going to lead a celibate lifestyle. I said earlier, this was a radical group. Mm -hmm. Outsiders saw that and they said, man, that's wild. Not only are you shaking and dancing as part of worship, but the way that you live, your family structure is very different than how basically everyone else in England was doing it at that. Um, I guess not just then, but also now too, right? Well, I was going to ask um, if yeah. it, was there another um, sect or religion that believed as they did that Christ had already appeared but in a spiritual way uh yes and i'm not an expert on this in any sense but really. they weren't alone in thinking that uh, that christ had already uh, risen and and appeared once again i don't want to say one way or the other on that i'm just really not yeah. certain uh they weren't by themselves in the sense that there were a lot of groups in england at this time who were moving away from the church of england in the sense of they really wanted a more experiential type of worship uh, they were tired of going and listening to the service they wanted something that they could take um, you know part in themselves and mm -hmm. they could have some some type of say over that mm -hmm. um so i don't really know about the Christ spirit coming back aspect of it so much, but definitely they weren't the only group who was trying to experiment with new forms of worship. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, yeah, they were leading a celibate lifestyle, um, and they also saw God in two parts. They said God is male and God is female. 
Other mainstream, other mainstream Christian groups are going to say God is actually in three parts, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Shakers, because they're choosing to lead a celibate lifestyle, because they see God in two parts that are male and female, and because of that, they wanted to have a male and female head in every single aspect of their life on earth. So later on, uh, when they started to form you know, communes and villages, and this is after they've already left England, um, but they're going to have males and females uh, to lead them. That's really going to set them apart uh, once they do get to the U.S. and they start to form, you know, villages like people often uh, often associate with them now. And the uh, the male and females heads of the churches uh, were equal in their uh, abilities and their authority. Uh, yes. Um, and I pause there uh, <laughs> because there are different eras of the Shaker history. And it's really hard to say the Shaker story was this. At certain times, there are going to be Shaker men especially who are going to say things and write things and not be entirely happy that there was a female who was going to lead certain aspects of their life. But if you're looking at the Shaker story in terms of a general overview, males and females always had equal power within the village itself. So whether that was in the, uh, the elders and elderesses and deacons and deaconesses and things like that, um, male and female heads of different aspects of the Shaker's life definitely had the same power and um, it wasn't like one was ever subservient to the other. And on that note, in England, uh, one of the Shakers and the main Shaker leader uh, in this era was Mother Anne Lee. Uh, so the movement itself was led by, um, you know, a woman at this time, which again, something that is, that definitely set the Shakers as, as apart and different from other groups. And what time period are we in? Uh... So now we're in like the 1750s, and I don't want to stay in England forever on this, uh, but basically by 1774, the Shakers have made the choice to leave England. Uh, they're still very small. In fact, all the Shakers left England in 1774, and there were only nine. So it's a very small group. Again, they're very poor. Uh, they're outspoken. They've been in jail. They've done. They've you know done some things to uh, upset other people uh, in the area that they were in. Uh, but they made that call again to leave England in 1774. And really, they get to the U.S. in August of that of that year. And for about the next. Uh, 25 years or so, they are going to be centered in New York and the um, areas around like Massachusetts and Maine and things like that. Anne Lee lives until 1784, and when she's alive, she is kind of like a one-woman force. Uh, she is constantly going out and preaching and taking this message to various towns, and she's trying to win converts. And this is going to be absolutely crucial to the Shakers' history and story, um, because if you're leading a celibate lifestyle, mm -hmm. You have to win converts. Well, Anne Lee's death in 1784 really starts a new era in the Shaker's history because it was kind of her force of person that was keeping everything going at this time. And she was huge on She didn't want to write down anything. She didn't believe in written creeds or anything like that. She kind of wanted to be that ongoing you know, divine inspiration. Um, so that was what was going to keep their movement moving forward. But after her death, the Shakers have to find a way as a group to, if, if everything was really tied to her force of being, how are we going to organize things to move forward? Uh, so they make the call, and I'm skipping over a lot of facts here, uh, but they make the call in 1787 to start forming communes, and villages, and that's really what people often associate with the group now, because mm -hmm. they can come out to places like Pleasant Hill mm -hmm. or any of the other villages around the U.S., uh, but it wasn't until 1787 that, that that call was actually made, and by that time, you've got the Shakers really settling down to uh, what we call the three C's. They were going to lead a celibate lifestyle. They're going to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to live as the angels did in heaven. They were not going to live as husband and wife. And in fact, they said, if you look back, the root of all sin starts in the flesh. So by choosing to lead a celibate lifestyle, they often said taking up the cross, taking up that shaker cross, they knew that was a really hard thing to do, and that was something that was really core to their being. Uh, but if you had to make that call, once you had made that call, 
if you could follow that, uh, then that really sets you on the path that they wanted you to be on. The second C was they were going to own everything in common. So everything within the villages was going to be shared. So once you join, you signed a covenant uh, and you gave over all of your earthly goods. If you own land or if you had a business or if you had a farm, that was sold. You gave over all, all the assets. Um, if you ever wanted to leave, you could always leave, but guess what you didn't get back? Mm. All those goods that you had signed over. Now that wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, sometimes here at Pleasant Hill, um, they wanted people to leave so badly that they said, here, take your money, take your land. Mm. We just don't want you. You're causing us mm -hmm. issues, right? Uh, so leading a celibate lifestyle, everything is shared in common. And something else, the last C, confession of sin. Um, and this was something that was really key. Elders um, uh, would hear confession of sin daily, uh, not always daily, um, but at least usually weekly, mm. um, if not several times a week, because people who were already in the faith. Uh, they wanted to help others who were new coming in. Again, this is a really hard life to choose to lead. If you're going to cut off all ties to the outside world, you're going to lead a celibate lifestyle. You're going to have to have someone help you grow and advance in the you know, faith. Um, so elders and elderesses were really big on helping those people who were coming in new. Who were some of those that were recruited? Were there... Uh uh, adults and children? Were there adults who had been married? Were, did they all come in uh, as uh, uh, single uh, with, without marriage, or, or did they give up marriage to come into the movement? Excellent question. Um, and I think that cuts to the one of the most important things that people have a hard time understanding about the Shakers, and that is family structure. Because when people joined, and um, if I could, I'm just going to cut um, ahead a bit now. So the Shakers, by early 1805, they hear about revivals. I'm going to touch on this issue mm -hmm. of family, I promise. Mm -hmm. um, by, early eight, by, excuse me, by the early 1800s, um, they hear about these massive revivals happening in the West. And Kentucky very much was the West at that time. And they hear about people worshiping um, in services with tens of thousands of people. And people are speaking in tongues. And they're falling on the ground. And they're shaking and worshiping. And it's just experiential worship that the Shakers say, Hey, it sounds like the Spirit is moving in the West very much like the Spirit moved in England and New England later. Ann Lee also, late in, late in um, her life, said there's going to be the next great opening of the gospel is going to be in the West. So it's natural for them to look to the mm -hmm. West. So the Shakers sent several folks down uh, as a missionary, uh, basically to this area. They got to Ohio, Indiana, and then of course here in this area by 1805. Uh, by the end of 1806 in Mercer County here, uh, 44 people had signed a covenant to form the village at our site. Um, so Pleasant Hill officially dates back the first covenant, at least, to 1806. And you're asking about the people coming in. And this is really important to the early history of this site and really all of the Shaker sites um, that were able to last as long as they were was because you didn't just have single people coming in. You had people joining who had already been living as husband and wife in the outside world. So maybe you had a man and wife who had already had a dozen kids. Hmm. One of the, either the man or the wife, heard the message, they felt the call, the family as a group made the choice, we're going to come and join this village. So of course they wouldn't have just left their kids in the outside world. They brought everyone in. Now, you had asked about if they could live as husband and wife within the village, and no, they, that was not something that the Shakers would have um, happen. Uh, once they were within the village, they would, uh, as I've already mentioned, live as brothers and sisters. Um, so they would um, you know, sunder all those bonds, at least, with the outside world. Um, and in fact, it really wasn't your job then to raise the kids that you had brought in with you. It was every adult's job to help raise every single child who was here. So very early on, you have these different you know, family groups coming in. So you've got a lot of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on and so forth, but you've got a lot of kids as well. And this is what something that always shocks people. 
They say, you're talking about all these kids. I'm seeing photos of kids running around here. How did this happen? And it's because people joined as family groups. Mm -hmm. Within the villages, they lived in family groups as well, but not in a nuclear family as people often would in the in the outside world at that mm -hmm. time. So family is still really important and to the you know shaker story that's something that is kind of lost because people are always kind of shocked by they had to give up their kids. Um, and I always say, well, you could see your kids as much or as little as you might have wanted to. But the idea of family and being part of that family was just conceived very differently. Again, brother and sister, as opposed to husband and wife and kids living in the same home. So tell me what they were doing here uh, after they got established at Pleasant Hill. How much of their day was spent in worship? Sure, and, and that would be every day. I'm I'm going to assume Absolutely. of some sort. Yeah. And then, what else did they do? So that's an excellent question. Um, and we are lucky uh, because the Shakers kept very good records of what happened. Um, the Shakers in the early years here they grew extremely fast. Uh, they first formed again in 1806. They have about 44 people. By the 1820s, the early 1820s, they have 491 people living here. Um, so they've been growing extremely fast. They're winning a lot of converts. Um, they're winning. Did they go out to do this, or by word of mouth, or uh, other sections of the country send people here? How did that work? Excellent question again. Um, a little bit of both, honestly. Um, they're definitely now. Once the Shakers founded this site, once you signed a covenant to officially join here. Uh, the idea very much was that you were going to separate yourself from the sinful outside world. Uh, the Shakers at Pleasant Hill and other Shaker sites were basically trying to form heaven on earth. Um, this is a very lofty goal, but the Shakers' ultimate goal was the complete omission of all sins. Now, those are some high mm -hmm. standards, right? Uh, but they definitely saw themselves as forming kind of this bastion, this area where they were going to be separate from the outside world. Now, they still had to have contact with, with the outside world. Um, for instance, they had to send out goods. So they made, uh, by the 1840s, they're making brooms. They're, of course, going to package seeds, package herbs. So they have to send out goods. They have to interact with the outside world. And there is just some of that natural interaction that happens. People are curious about what's happening here. But in the early years, one of the main ways that the, that, um, the Shakers got out their message in terms of their faith was that they would often invite outsiders to come and watch them worship on certain days. Um, and that was because, again, if you're going to lead a celibate lifestyle, you've got to win converts. Uh, and if you can get the people to come to you, that's always much much easier way than it is to constantly go out. Uh, the Shakers at all times here, they also weren't always seen in the best light. Uh, that's something else that if you come out to our site nowadays, it's extremely rural, it's extremely peaceful. It's a place you can put up a chair, you can read a book, it's gonna be a really nice day. Again, the Shakers are radical. They're worshiping in a way that's very different. They're leading a you know, lifestyle. They're putting women in equal positions of power to men. Uh, they're allowing anyone of any race, any national origin, as long as you have, as long as you follow, I should say, the Shaker's faith, um, you're treated as an equal within this space. Um, so the Shakers weren't always seen in the best light because they were living in a way that was so different from the outside world. So by getting the outsiders to come to them to watch them worship, uh, that was one way uh, to kind of, I guess, not ruffle the feathers um, as much in the outside world. Were they primarily self-sustaining? Uh, they produced a lot of goods that they shipped out of here. Yeah. Uh, did they have to import um, Part of what they yeah, and that's, needed. Yeah, and that definitely ties back into your question earlier about work and how much of the Shakers' day was spent working. Uh, the Shakers were extremely hard-working people. Um, they viewed their work as a form of their faith, basically. Um, you, 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 are, um, you had also asked um, if they worshipped every single day. Um, they definitely had... Um, 
times to meet every single day. Now, they didn't go to a meeting house so much to do the full-on worship with everyone from the village here every single night. That was a Sunday thing. That was going to happen once every week when people from the village would come to like one large service. Uh, but they definitely had times to meet during the week, and they would share letters. They would... Um, share stories of inspiration just to kind of help build up people's faith and things like that. But their work, I mean, that's something that they viewed as everything that you do should be, they said, to honor God. So if you're going to work, if you're going to do anything, uh, do your work to your utmost. Uh, if that's going to be making chairs or desks or cupboards or if you're making brooms or if you're working on the farm or if you're you know cooking uh, if you are doing any of the various tasks if you're making clothes for people if you're doing laundry everything that they did they saw as part of their faith so in that sense they're really worshiping all the time and their work because they did so much hard work because they put so much focus on that um, it really it really helped to I guess drive the economic success ultimately of the village too. You know, Dr. Glover, uh, I've been here many times and it just dawned on me that I don't think in, in the grounds where I've been to meetings and where I've been just as a, as a tourist, I don't think I remember seeing a large church structure. Yeah, uh, it's right in the center of the village. How, how many people will it hold? Well, in theory, <laughs> it would hold at least everyone here now. So the height of the village in terms of numbers was 491. And 400 um, could get into that structure. Last September, we had about 250 in there, and last December, we had about 300 oh, okay. in there. It's pretty tight. Now, the Shakers would not have used that term church. For the Shakers, <laughs> the church was the body of people, uh -huh. and the building was just the house where they met. Okay. So the meeting house. Well, I've been in the meeting house, and I so, so that... That's just uh, ignorance on my part no, in, in no. thinking that I was looking for a, a, a church as we know it uh, today. Well, that's something else, and that's every time that I have someone out here um, and we tour that space, uh, one of the things I always do is just have them set down, and I just ask them, does this look like any church building you've ever seen? And they're always like, well, not really. And I say, what's missing? Well, one thing that's missing, there's no um, altar. There's no one point or mm -hmm. a focal point, I guess, to look at. And that's because there wasn't... Um, and Shaker worship is something that changed over the years, definitely. And when I say the Shakers worship in this way, I'm really only saying that they worshiped in this way in certain decades and really the early part of their time here. Um, people often think of the uh, really fast dances, so circle dances and line dances, and uh, doing those movements where the spirit might call them as they would feel led, they might fall out of line. They would do their own movements and dances. Um, but the Shakers, um, they would still have maybe a short message. They would have some type of formal session to their worship service, almost always. Um, but then they would start to dance and sing, and as people felt called, they might you know, fall out of line and do their own movement. So if you've been in that space, you notice there are, it's basically completely open. In that first story, mm -hmm. there are no columns and pillars and things like that. And that was very specifically built. Uh, they needed to have that space mm -hmm. to move about. The seats in there, um, they're not attached. So they could push all of mm -hmm. the benches to the sides. Uh, something else that you won't see, icons. So the Shakers didn't put up um, a cross, a crucifix, or anything like that. It's very simple. Um, the Shakers, everything that they built, their buildings, their architecture, their furniture, everything favored function over form. Now you might say, I've seen three stories sets of spiral staircases here too. Um, so the Shakers at Pleasant Hill did uh, favor form uh, at certain times, but that space, yeah, very much purpose-built, and that's really kind of the story of everything here. Everything in this village, on this site, was purpose-built, purpose-sided to allow the Shakers to live the way that they uh, felt called to by their faith, and 
you know, the meeting house where they worship, that's really one of the most amazing architectural features um, that we have here at the, at the site. And it was built originally when? What's the, what, what does it date back to, or do you know that? Well, you're here in the exact right time because it was finished October 31st, 1820. Hmm. So this is the 200th year, the 200th anniversary mm-hmm. of that building being built. Um, they built the whole thing uh, from the time they went into the woods to cut down the trees to make the boards and timber to build the... Um, site um, uh, in ten in ten months time, uh, so built within a very short time frame. Uh, it's also kind of similar to a lot of the other meeting houses at other Shaker villages that were being built at that time. They were definitely sharing ideas from um, across the U.S. How many other uh, Shaker villages uh, sure. were there at that time, and um, where were they? Who? Many, That's many. gonna be a long answer. <laughs> is, that, is that right? Is it? Well, um, it's really and, hard. And are really they, hard to uh, say for sure. I can. Yeah. Are they? Um, well, so so what you're saying is there were numerous there all were. across the civilized or the occupied uh, part of the United States at that time. For sure. So as far north as Maine. Um, by the 1820s and 30s, it's as far south. As just a couple of a couple of hours south of here in Logan County, there was another village, um, and then a little bit to the west of us in like Indiana and Ohio. By the mid 1800s, you've probably got about 24 to 25 villages that are going to have had lasted. Now they're not all still active at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one village in Indiana, for instance, that. Um, it was only open for a couple of years, and in fact, a lot of the Shakers who left there in the 1820s, I believe, uh, that's the right era on that, uh, they ended up coming here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got a lot of different sites and villages, but around 24 to 25 that are going to last for a significant amount of time. And then you've got a lot of other smaller areas, too, that might not have lasted for more than just a couple of months. Um, but a very active settlement that uh, believe the number... Um, probably pushing close to 10,000 maybe at any one time, and that's not, mm-hmm. that's just a guess. That's mm-hmm. a very, you know, wide yeah. estimate at this time. But it was a pretty, it wasn't a, you know, huge group. Um, but they're they're definitely sharing ideas. Um, they're definitely um, sending, this is something else too. So the eastern sites that have been founded as early as uh, 1787 to get, our village going, they sent several folks down here to actually lead and govern our site. And the first building that we had, the first permanent building, I should say, built on site, was built and it was finished in 1809. And that was built very specifically to house those eastern shakers who mm-hmm. were going to come to the site just to kind of help uh, the um, you know locals mm-hmm. here uh, advance and grow and also just be able to govern and live in a way that again is very different from how they had been living in the outside world. You're using uh, the word govern. What uh, sort of uh, policy or politic did they practice other than or was it all wrapped in the um, the cloth of uh, religiosity? This is one of my favorite questions. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, I know that we don't have you know eight hours, so you're gonna have to stop me here. Um, but this is something that I think is one of the most interesting aspects of how the Shakers lived. Within the village itself, everyone's equal. Everyone has the exact same rights, but not everyone has the same say in how the group as people and village are going to live. If they did, it's absolute chaos, right? If they took 500 votes on every single thing, it's absolute chaos. So there was a very specific governing structure to each village. And even within the wider range of settlements, there were other Shaker sites that had some type of oversight and um, they could send people to lead to fill certain offices. So it wasn't like, you know, Pleasant Hill was ever completely isolated from all the other um, you know, shaker sites and settlements. So the governing structure within this village, though, so at Pleasant Hill, in theory, the group um, that was the government head was the, and this word sometimes uh, causes people to think differently, but they were the ministry. And it's not a minister in the sense of a preacher, it's more an ad minister. Mm-hmm. Um, so that group, in theory, is always going to have four people in it. Two men, 
to women at all times. Within those four, though, there is almost always one person who kind of has the absolute final say. And at this village, starting in 1809 through the late 1820s, was Lucy Smith. Um, so there was a female in charge at this village for about the first, I think it was the first 18 years or so, um, through its expansion, uh, building massive buildings, uh, having hundreds of people come in and join their growing. Um, they have all these acreage or all these um, different farms being added to their site here. Uh, so she's overseen this really amazing building project. Um, so it's really, that's one of the more interesting aspects of the story itself. Uh, but outside of those four, you've also got uh, really over every workspace, you have a deacon and deaconess, because again, you've got a man and a woman head over these various tasks. And you've also got within the different family groups here, um, elders, dresses so you've got different people to lead and to kind of answer things it's a strict hierarchy in the sense of what the elder says what the elders says what the minister says the you really the rank and file are expected to follow that um, and when they didn't especially here at this village it almost brings everything down to an absolute crashing halt uh, in the 1820s um, this is my favorite shaker. I'm sorry, I'm going to venture into my own personal story here. Not my personal story. This is this is my favorite story. His name mm -hmm. is John Whitby. Uh, John Whitby is someone who I'll just call a seeker. Um, he's one of many folks in the early 1800s in the U.S. who is looking for something. Um, and there are a lot of communes and villages like the shakers and other groups as well. Um, a lot of folks join because they have questions about faith. They want to find where they fit. Well, John Whitby had a brother who was here, and he decided just to come and live here. He wanted to see what it was like. And in general, Whitby was a fan of how everything here was done, of how they lived. He thought they were pretty happy. Um, everything went along fine. But John Whitby had a real problem with anybody telling him what to do. And if you're going to join a strict hierarchy where the what the elder says, mm -hmm you know, goes, um, you can, there's some, uh, there are some opportunities for tension there, right? Mm -hmm. So Whitby ultimately gets the Shakers here to vote and how those offices were filled, the top offices were appointed. So uh, there, was a, there was a separate village in Ohio. So Union Village would appoint the ministers to come to this site to lead. The ministers appointed elders and elderesses and so on and so forth. John Whitby says, why do we let the ministers and elders appoint people to lead us. He says, we should be able to vote because if we're going to listen to them, we should be able to have a vote and say on that. And this plays in very well with what's happening in broader U.S. culture at that mm -hmm. time, right? The democratic impulse is on the, on the rise and John Whitby is definitely feeling part of this. Um, and he's also been in contact, oh man, the name right now is leaving me. Um, it's New Harmony. Um, New Harmony, Indiana. Yeah, um, I can't. I cannot think of the person who was in charge or the uh, person's ideas that they were, you know, following at uh, that time. Adopted those. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, oh, he's like a Scottish thinker. I can't think of his name right now. Uh, but anyway, so Whitby is in contact with those people, mm -hmm. and they're talking about how they organize things socially. So basically, again, and this gets back to your earlier question: was how was the governing structure here? What was it? I guess, based on. Um, and for the Shakers here, it was definitely built upon their faith. And the idea, again, was you had this very strict hierarchy to help people advance in the faith. But John Whitby, uh, again, he, he, he feels called here, but he's not really pulled in. He doesn't really have an extremely strong tie, I would say, to the Shakers. Um, he does have a strong tie. I shouldn't say that. He doesn't buy in completely to their vision of their faith and how that worked out. Mm. Um, so he's looking at these other communes and things like that that had been formed and he says, hey, they're doing things, their governing structure is a lot more equitable because they get to vote on who's going to lead. You know, why aren't we using, you know, logic and reason? Why aren't we using these things? Um, and the elders, he comes into contrast with the elders because the elders uh, in some ways receive guidance through divine inspiration. And John Whitby says, basically, um, this is he says it in very artfully, but basically what he says is they're just making it all up. Mm -hmm. And they're using their own office 
to basically control everyone and keep themselves in power. Hmm. So you can definitely see that John Whitby and the elders here are not going to get along very well at all. Uh, and Whitby, ultimately, again, he gets the people here to, to vote to make changes. Here at this village, at this site, they make that shift, they make that change to actually vote on elders and ministers and things like that. Um, and they also break apart what's called the shared interest. Um, they no longer share everything as a village for a couple of months. Uh, it's probably like eight months or so. Uh, but now you've got these different family groups. And I've already mentioned that if you're out here, you've seen the West family dwelling and the Center family dwelling and so on and so forth. The different family groups start to have control over how they're going to spend money, what they're going to buy, what they're going to purchase. True departure from what's called church order, right? The Shakers at this village, and Whitby has a lot of followers, they send a couple of Shakers to the eastern um, sites and they basically send them to say, hey, we've made these different changes. Don't worry about sending anyone down to lead us or to fill these various offices because we're going to vote for who's going to fill mm -hmm. them. Well, the Shakers in the east say, you're out of order, obviously, and they send in leaders from a lot of other Shaker sites. Um, and the ultimate outcome of this is that Whitby and his followers ultimately leave. Uh, so Whitby's already left by this point, actually. Um, but his followers are asked to leave, and the court case that results from this isn't settled until 1834. But this is a really tough time for the Shakers who are here because it's not certain that they're going, if, for instance, if they had lost that court case, they could owe Whitby and everyone who left a lot of money. If they were trying to sue, for instance, for wages, mm. they said, I've been here for eight years. I've worked for all these years. You know, why can't I get paid if I'm leaving? Um, so the court case eventually settles and the Shakers here win. Um, but this was a really tough time, a trying time. Around 50 people or so actually left as a result of this. And if you think about it, what the Shakers the hardest thing for them to get, what they have to value above everything else is just really people, right? Because if you have a limited pool of people coming in, mm -hmm. and to lose that many people was really hard on them, but it really also kind of set them up to really advance after that period because you've kind of lost the people who, don't, who aren't following that one common vision, who aren't following that one common goal. Um, so when they get set out on the right path, when they get set on that kind of, they, you know, get their eyes back on the prize, so to speak, um, it really sets them up well to really prosper uh, through the 1830s, 1840s, uh, and 1850s. Um, I know that you had asked earlier just about kind of their contact with the outside world. Uh, that's definitely something that they had in terms of, you know, sending goods and things like that. Uh, the Shakers in the East especially are known for making, again, chairs and desks and furniture pieces. And the Shakers here at Pleasant Hill definitely made all those things too. Um, they were here though mainly made for their own personal use at this site. Mm -hmm. um, so furniture, for instance, wasn't really made for sale here. Uh, the, the farm here is really what set the Shakers apart. Um, their four biggest uh, ways to make money were brooms, uh, seed packets, herbs, and then also jams and jellies. Um, so, I mean, they had they had thousands of acres here. They had orchards. They were buying fruit from outside farmers too, uh, just to meet the need that people had in the outside world. So, it was really the farm that really set them up uh, to succeed in the way that they did. Um, it's, it's kind of always a misnomer to say the golden era where, you know, these years. Uh, but if you look at their kind of the height of their influence, uh, at least in terms of market impact in places like Louisville, St. Louis, New Orleans, and things like that, um, they're able to get goods. They're sending people out with, you know, boatloads of goods, wagon loads of goods. Um, it's really once they kind of emerge from that earlier fight over what the village, are we going to follow the true Shaker ideals? Or are we going to just be a social experiment that changes and fades and fails once they all get on the same page that kind of really sets them up to succeed? So why did they leave? That's a tough question because um, it's not, sorry, it's not a tough question. It's a long question to answer. Um, and we hear this a lot. Uh, we tell this really um, 
not long, but this really positive story, I should say, about how the Shakers drew in converts. They lived as a close-knit family, and they were living in a slightly different sense. Uh, they had these ties to the outside world. They were sending goods to market. So what happens? Um, if they are really hitting their stride, 1830s, 40s, and 50s, um, by the 1870s, 1880s, it's pretty obvious here um, that things are not going as well as they once were. The number one thing that I would say is just they're they're just losing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early years, I've already mentioned, you know, people came in, husband and wife, bringing in ten kids, and um, you know that was something that was very common. Um, they also took in orphans, for instance. Uh, sometimes people would just left children here. They knew that the Shakers would take mm-hmm. them in and raise them. Now the kids, once they came of age, they were always given a choice. You know, do you want to leave or do you want to stay? Um, and if you ever wanted to leave at any point in time, uh, the Shakers never forced you to be here. Um, in the early years, a lot of those kids who came in with siblings and parents and things like that, a lot of them make the choice to actually say, this is what I want to do. This is all that I know. Uh, people who came in, for instance, maybe as an orphan in the 1850s, you come in when you're 13, within just a couple of years, you're given the choice, do you want to stay or leave? Um, by that time period, not everyone, but a lot of people are making the call to leave. Um, it's also just people age out. Um, so as people die and things like that, uh, your numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller. That's the probably the most important thing. Um, but there were just a lot of changes as well. Um, so the Civil War, uh, there was a battle that happened near here in October of 1862. So Perryville, of course. Um, that fall, the Shakers fed troops from either side. Uh, it really hurt them uh, that winter, and that they, you know, used you know just a lot of their mm. food stores at least to feed those troops. Um, the war itself didn't really bring about the immediate end of the village. It was really what I always say is just the war, the world that the war made. Um, so after the Civil War, you've got the U.S. expanding to the West again. So, of course, territories coming in, uh, being added as states, um, which opens up more areas for crops in the West. You've got, you know, wheat belts and things like that that open up in the West. So livestock, too. Through the 1850s, the Shakers are known for award-winning, you know, animals here. Um, that also kind of shifts West as other markets open up and things like that. And something that's not always mentioned, but that is absolutely crucial to the economic clout of this village kind of losing some of its steam, I guess, is that the Shakers had a water port here. So Kentucky River, I mean, runs right by our site, and that was really how they were getting goods to market. They helped to build the main road through this area in the 1830s. But the railroad comes in and just bypasses it. And I always ask people, have you seen a town that looked like it stopped growing in the 1960s? That's because they didn't build the interstate past it or you know, through it, right? Uh-huh. Um, so it's just kind of as the world changes, the shakers don't adapt and evolve. Um, whereas in the early 1800s, the shakers are definitely, if you compare them to the outside world, very forward-thinking. Uh, again, they're accepting in people of all different genders and race and everything else. So they're using everyone's skills. They don't say the only people who have skills and talent that we can use are white men. They're using everyone's skills. Um, that really sets them apart. It really kind of adds a lot of knowledge um, you know, to their um, base. Um, they're also, um, by the fact that they were going to share work here, uh, they didn't need everyone to farm. Uh, so they could have people making brooms, almost like a factory in the household, right? Um, by the 1870s and 1880s, however, the Shakers, where they once were seen as this like very forward-thinking people, they're more advanced, for instance. I mean, they're building 21,000 square feet homes out of limestone with mm-hmm. windows uh, and glass, and they've got fan windows, and they've got spiral staircases. It's beautiful architecture. I mean, lots of people in this area living in single-room cabins, right? Um, they're, so they're so advanced. Uh, but when, then you've got the rise of cities. Um, you've got different factories being built, goods that were once uh, the Shakers had much larger market share. They start to lose that market share. Uh, then just as they lost people, uh, they could not keep up. This is something else that really hurts them. Um, the Shakers have to start hiring people to do certain tasks here. Uh, they have all this land. They have all these acres. 
they start to kind of farm out work. Um, so they, for instance, by the 1880s, in some years, they are having all of the brooms made here made by a family that lived near here. Mm. So they're having to you know, get other mm -hmm. people in to do this work. They've also got these huge buildings, right? They've got all these rooms built for hundreds of people. If you've only got 75 people or so left, you've got all these open rooms. Well, they start to rent out rooms. So it's a way to make money. But if your core vision is tied up in we're going to separate ourselves from the outside world. We're going to follow the you know, reasonings and dictates of mm -hmm. our faith. And we're going to have one common goal. Our goal is to make this village heaven on earth. Well, now you're inviting the outside world in. And they've kind of always had that here. I mean, the main road went right through the heart of the village. They're sending people out with goods. They're, they definitely had to buy things. They were as self-sufficient. This is a long circle back to your earlier question. <laughs> they were as self-sufficient uh -huh. as possible, but they definitely had to buy things. They had to purchase glass and sugar and you know things like that that they, that, that they couldn't make here on site. Um, but when they start to have all of these other people coming in from the outside to live and things like that, it just changes the nature of the settlement. Um, so lots of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. It's really hard to pinpoint one, uh, but those are some yeah. of the major things. Uh, Dr. Glover, as we wrap up, uh, there are many reasons for people to visit Pleasant yeah, absolutely. Hill. And I'm sure that uh, you would encourage um, everyone to do that if, they, if they've not visited or if they need to come back and uh, there's always something new uh, uh, to discover. Absolutely, yeah, and we still do a lot now. Uh, we do a lot to share the history here, and that's really the mission of our site. So the business that operates the site now um, actually formed in 1961, which was over 50 years after the covenant here actually closed. Uh, and the last Shaker um, sister passed away in the early 1900s. There hasn't been a Shaker living on site here for 97 years, but there's still a ton of history out here. Um, so one of the things that has definitely changed how we've operated um, in the past probably six years or so, um, a lot of people knew us, uh, and we first opened for tours, I should say, in 1968. Um, what we had done for years and years was we set a scene of daily life here. Mm -hmm. And the village itself kind of has its look from the mid-1800s. It's really kind of set from the 1840s to 1860s. And really until 2014, uh, we had people who were here who were uh, in Shaker costume and Shaker garb. Uh, they were making brooms. They were operating looms and things like that. And that was a really successful model for many, many years. Uh, but we've noticed, we you know, had seen and noticed um, just as uh, people's tastes change, um, as we really needed to evolve and to stay um, modern, um, and relevant in a way um, that maybe we had started to let slip just a, a bit. Uh, we've moved away to uh, try to focus on bridging the past to present uh, with an emphasis really on making sure that we can do a couple of things. One thing is our number one mission is we have to preserve the buildings and the objects and the physical history and artifacts on this site. Um, and to do that, we want to share all aspects of the Shaker's history and story here. Uh, but we're really trying to share that history in a way that has modern meaning and relevance to people now. So if you come out, and we offer a lot of tours every single day, in fact, uh, by the summer we'll have about 30 different tours and talks uh, focused on different aspects of the Shaker's life here. Um, if you come out, for instance, and we talk about, uh, we have a program in the summer that focuses on brooms here. Um, we will talk about the, how the Shakers made brooms, how important they were to the Shakers. Uh, we'll show you the artifacts. We've got you know broom binders, we've got broom presses, and we've got the different tools, but we're really not walking you through how the Shakers made this broom. We're talking to you about the economics here. We're talking to you about a system of labor and work and how it helped to really build up the Shakers' um, you know, lifestyle here. And then we're going to ask you something. We're going to say, what types of businesses and factories in your hometown support the way that your city has evolved and changed over the years? Now, brooms here, they boomed for many, many, many years. Lots of people, I'm sure, can say, hey, there's a, there was a business in my hometown. It was once booming. Now it's not. Things change. How did your hometown um, change with those times. The Shakers here did not evolve very very well for lots of reasons as I've already mentioned. Um, so it's using the Shaker story, telling again the specific history, showing the artifacts, 
showing how things worked, but tying it into a much, um, I guess, larger story. And to me, it's a more interesting story because I always say we're trying to do some magic out here. Everyone comes out to learn about the you know shakers, but we're trying to use the shaker story to teach you something about yourself. Um, so that's kind of a fun way that we like to tell that. Um, and then of course we also do lots of things. Everyone knows, well, not everyone, but a lot of people know us for our food here, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so you can come out, you can take tours. We have 72 overnight rooms, uh, 13 different buildings on site so you can stay overnight, uh, you can eat on site, you can book events and meetings and conferences out here. Uh, we have 35 trails to come out and hike. Uh, you can ride our boat, um, that's going to start up in May, so the Dixie Bell season May to October every year. You can take a hay ride, a horse-drawn wagon ride, uh, you can go to the farm, you can meet all the animals on the farm. We're going to serve you, if you eat on site, we're going to serve you some of those vegetables that we've harvested from the garden. Don't forget those biscuits. <laughs> those are always that good. Lemon pie. Too. Lemon pie, absolutely. Um, so a lot of different ways that we support and tell the story now in a way that it's um, that uses the Shaker history and legacy, but we aren't beholden to that. We want to keep telling these stories in a way that keep people wanting to come back year after year. So we got a lot of things coming soon. I think the new exhibits that are going to go in the Center Family Dwelling and Meeting House are going to absolutely be a revolution in how we're able to tell the history and story here. Uh, it's going to be, of course, using text and panels, but lots of objects, interactives, uh, models and maps and things like that to really get people invested in the store in, an, in a new way. Um, and I'm, I'm huge on telling individual people's history and story here. Um, I would say for years and years people came out and they couldn't name you one person who lived at this site. You know, um, but so getting a chance to tell some of those stories, to talk about John Whitby, uh, to talk about some of these personal stories, um, that's what I really love. And over the past couple of years, I've just seen uh, um, people are really drawn and um, history comes alive here in a way that it doesn't at a lot of other places. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jacob Glover, uh, for sharing uh, the Shaker story with us today. And uh, giving us a preview of uh, what's coming up. And if I can invite myself back out sometime uh, soon when uh, the exhibits are complete and you're ready to sort of walk us through that, uh, we can we can do that again. Absolutely. And if you come back, we'll get you some of that lemon pie too. I won't miss that. <laughs> Dr. Jacob Glover, thank you. All right, thank you so much, Phil. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.